I'll add my greeting. Good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. It's wonderful to be worshiping together here in God's presence. Let's turn our hearts now to his word. Isaiah 61 is our Old Testament reading. Isaiah chapter 61. This is God's very word. So let's listen to it carefully and humbly. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. And they shall rebuild the old ruins. They shall raise up the former desolations. And they shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks. And the sons of the foreigner shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. But you shall be named the priests of the Lord. They shall call you the servants of our God. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles. And in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, you shall have double honor. And instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess double. Everlasting joy shall be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery for burnt offering. I will direct their work in truth and will make with them an everlasting covenant. Their descendants shall be known among the people. And their, offspring among, uh, and their offspring among the people, all who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are the posterity whom the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, For as the earth brings forth its bud, as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. And turning to the Gospel of Matthew for our sermon text this morning, Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be focused especially in verse 3 for the sermon this morning, but for the context here, we'll read all of uh, verses 1 through 11. Matthew 5, 1 through 11. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, perfect, unfailing word. Let's go to him now and ask him to bless it to us. In your word, O Lord, you tell us that you will look to and bless the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at your word. We pray that you would give us grace to be humble and contrite in spirit, to tremble at your word, to receive your word as it is the very word of God. And show us our Lord Jesus Christ and all His excellency and all His beauty and all His perfect uh, sufficiency for us as our Savior. Write this word on our hearts, we pray, for His dear sake. Amen. Last week, we were looking at how Jesus began His public ministry preaching the gospel of the coming of the kingdom. In Matthew 4:17, we get the summary statement of Jesus' message as he preaches, as he goes around Galilee from town to town as this itinerant preacher. He's saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God's reign is breaking in. The long-expected and long-awaited reign of God himself coming to save his people and judge their enemies. It's beginning. It's here. Repent. And then, as we move into chapter 5, we get that message unpacked, unfolded. We get more of the detail. Matthew 4, 17, repent, the kingdom of heaven's at hand. That's the summary. That's the, that's the main point. But now, uh, in, in Matthew 5, all the way through chapter 7, we get a nice sampling of Christ's preaching, of the details of it what it was exactly that he was preaching. And over the course of Matthew's Gospel, we're going to see these big sections of teaching that Matthew gives us from our Lord Jesus. He gives us five sections of major teaching, major discourses from Jesus. The first one is here, Matthew 5 through Matthew 7, the famous Sermon on the Mount. The main theme of this sermon is that the kingdom of heaven is here, and here's what it looks like to be in it. Jesus is showing us what it looks like to have a a life that is a life in the kingdom of heaven, in the midst of a fallen and sinful world. He's not painting the picture of life in the kingdom of heaven to come when sin is is not in the picture anymore, suffering is not in the picture anymore. He's saying this is what kingdom life in a fallen world looks like. And he shows us Uh, in in all these different ways, in chapters 5 through 7, what does it look like? How how do we live as citizens of the kingdom Jesus is bringing in the midst of a sinful and suffering-filled world? Now, the Sermon on the Mount is well-known, and 
uh, and, and lots of people appeal to it, and lots of people uh, um, uh, look at it and study it and teach on it. And it's often seen as being radical, and it is radical, but it's sometimes seen as, as being really a sermon for super disciples, for, for super saints, right? The, the teaching that Jesus gives us here is so, so it, it, it cuts to the very heart and, and, it, and it requires such a complete submission to him and a complete obedience to him. We might be tempted to say that, that what he's teaching here is, is not for the everyday, ordinary Christians. You know, run-of-the-mill disciples like you and me. But it is. One of the writers on this says, If you are not seeking to live out the Sermon on the Mount, you lack the fundamental evidence that Jesus Christ is your Savior. If you're not seeking to live out this sermon that Jesus preached, you lack the fundamental evidence that He's your Savior. You can't have Him as your Savior if He's not also your King. You don't, you don't come into the kingdom and then ignore the King's rules about how to live. These are the commands He gives to all those who would be citizens of His kingdom. Jesus Himself here is is sort of pictured for us as a new Moses. He's there. He's, he goes up the mountain. He takes the law and He gives the law to the people. And He's here not just like Moses, though, as the lawgiver, but as the King Himself giving this law. We have to submit to it. We have to listen. Pay attention. And then we're going to see all kinds of commands and demands that cost us a lot in the coming few weeks as we unpack this sermon together. But as Jesus begins... The sermon. He begins, yes, with things that imply radical demands, but they're not yet commands. He doesn't begin with a series of indicatives, a series of here's what you need to go do. He begins with blessing, proclaiming the grace of God for sinners. The word here for uh, the Beatitudes. That, that word that we know is, uh, is the word for blessing. And Jesus gives us in this opening section of his Sermon on the Mount eight defining marks of kingdom life. He starts out by telling us eight defining marks of kingdom life. What they are and why they're so good to have. Why they're blessings for us. As we, so as we dive in here to look at these Beatitudes, and we're looking at the first one only this morning, the poor in spirit. Let's take a minute first to understand what Jesus means when he says, blessed. What does that word mean? Blessed. What is the blessed life? Blessed is not a word we use that much in our culture. I mean, we we see it around some times. When's the last time someone blessed you? It's probably when you sneezed, right? Bless you. All right, what, what does that mean? What, it, what is blessing? I mean, some people talk about blessing kind of like, I mean, that they feel lucky. I'm so blessed to have, uh, you know, my car started today. Um, uh, I've, got, I've got good kids. I'm, I'm, I'm blessed to have that. And that's true. There's a sense in which that's what the biblical concept is. But it's not a rich concept, is it, in our culture, this idea of blessing. It might help us if we think about the opposite. Cursing. The opposite of blessing. That might be something our culture understands better. We know what a curse is. It's wishing someone harm. Wishing them uh, the, the disfavor of God. Wishing someone to, to come into, uh, into, into hurt. So if we take that idea, right? This idea of a curse is a, is a word wishing on you 
uh, pain and suffering and, and the disfavor of God. Blessing is quite the opposite. It's a word wishing on you the favor and the smile and the goodness of God. If we, if we can flush this out with Scripture to help us understand this from the Bible's perspective, we look at a famous text of blessing in the Old Testament, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man. There's a beatitude. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The psalmist is saying, here is the blessed man. Here's the man on whom God shows favor and, and, and goodness. And the, the idea is that here is the man living the good life from the Bible's perspective. Here's the, here's the guy that everyone wants to be from the Bible's perspective. The one, who doesn't, uh, the one who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, but walks in the counsel of God's word. This is, this is the good life. The life under God's favor. That's what the blessed life is. It's the good life. Picture with me for a moment what, you know, what, what, what comes to your mind when you think of the good life. What, uh, what ideal life would you like to have? What ideal, uh, what, what, what house or, or what, what possessions would you like to have? What, what kind of health would you like to be in? How would you like your body to look? What kind of family would you want to be a part of? What, what, is, what is the good life for you? Calvin, John Calvin, describes what most people think of as the good life like this. He says, he is the happy man who is free from annoyance, who attains all his wishes and leads a joyful and easy life. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? The good life. Flush out the picture a little more. Pick out eight things, if you might, in your mind. You can jot them down if you like. Eight things that, that would, for you, mean that would, that, that's what I would love to have. That's what I'd love to be developed in me. That's what I, that's what, if I had these eight things, I'd have the good life. Jesus says to us, here's eight things that are God's definition of the good life. Would any of his eight make your list? What does he say? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Is that one of your, was, it, was that one of your New Year's resolutions perhaps? One, one, one of the things you set your ambitions for. I want to be poorer in spirit this year than I was last year. All right, what, what about, what, he goes on, blessed are those who mourn. I want to be a more mournful person. Is that something we strive for? Is that something we see as the good life? He, he goes on, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, who lack and need the grace and the righteousness and the mercy of God. See, Jesus lists here, it goes on all the way to the saying, blessed are those who are persecuted. The good life, according to Jesus. He flips everything on its head, doesn't he? With these statements about what kingdom life looks like, what the blessed life, the happy life, according to the king, looks like. And yet he says, this is the pathway to true blessing and true delight and joy in the kingdom. Let's dive in then and look at the first beatitude. This first defining mark of a kingdom life, this first defining mark of a good life, according to Jesus, is to be poor 
in spirit. Poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It's not entirely clear up front, perhaps. It might seem like it means to be um, cowardly or, or discouraged. Someone who has no spirit, no fighting spirit. Uh, someone who's faint-hearted or someone who might have low self-esteem. But none of those things is what Jesus has in mind here. If we look at some other texts of Scripture, they can again shed some light on, on the meaning of this, poor in spirit, what that, what that means. We read earlier Psalm 34 in the worship service. We read that together responsively. And verse 6 of Psalm 34 says this, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and delivered him out of all his troubles. King David says, I'm a poor man. And I called out to the Lord, and he delivered me there in Psalm 34. And we see this throughout the Old Testament. The poor is often a way that God's people are described. Maybe they are you know, financially poor. Maybe they're not financially poor. But, but often God's people are oppressed, and they're humbled under uh, the discipline of God. They're downtrodden. They're helpless. They're vulnerable in the eyes of the world. And they don't have the resources to save or bless themselves. We see this a lot in the Old Testament, this description of God's people as the poor. Another text which uh, clarifies this for us is Isaiah 66, verse 2. The Lord says, Isaiah 66, verse 2, This is the man to whom I will look, he that is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. That's what it is to be poor in spirit, according to Isaiah 66, 2. Humble and contrite in heart, trembling at God's word. To be poor in spirit is to understand that you are spiritually bankrupt, that that you lack all spiritual resources in yourself, that you are in deep, deep debt spiritually before God, that you're totally dependent on Him. You're like a beggar on the side of the road with nothing, holding out your hands, pleading. One writer says it means to be spiritually emptied, emptied of self-confidence, emptied of self-importance, emptied of self-righteousness. Martin Luther understood this so well by God's grace. He's on his deathbed. He writes one last word in a letter. We are beggars. This is true. Poor in spirit, a beggar before God. Loved ones, does that define you? That how you understand who you are before God. Jesus gives this to us as the first defining mark of what it is to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. This is step one. This, this is foundational. Sinclair Ferguson comments here. He says, no one can be a Christian without this spirit. Everyone who is a Christian has this spirit. It's the spirit of the Canaanite woman. In Matthew 15, verses uh, 22 to 27, this Canaanite woman, this Gentile, not one of God's people according to the, you know, the outward physical sign of being a Jew. Right? She's outside that. But, but she comes and she comes to Jesus and asks him to save her daughter who has been possessed with a demon. And uh, Jesus responds that he came for the lost sheep of Israel. He came for Israelites, for the covenant people of God, not for those who are Gentiles outside that covenant. 
But she persists. She comes and she kneels down before Jesus. She says, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, if you came to Jesus in your need, and you said, I need your help, and he said, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to a dog like you, how would you respond? Offended? I'll, I'll, I'll take my business somewhere else. Right? I don't, I'll, you know, I, I'm not a dog. I'm worth something. But the Canaanite woman who comes to Jesus in Matthew 15 is poor in spirit. How does she respond? She says, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She says, yes, I am a dog. I am utterly undeserving. I'm a beggar. I have no right or claim on you. But that's exactly why I'm here. Because I so desperately need you, Jesus. See, to be poor in spirit, like that Canaanite woman, is to be a beggar, but a bold beggar at the same time. She's pleading with Christ and she won't let him go until he blesses her. This is what it means to be poor in spirit, are you? How do we come to see ourselves this way? How do we, how do we become more poor in spirit? It doesn't come naturally. It doesn't, it doesn't just happen to us. It's not just a form of, self, uh, of low self-esteem or, 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 or self-pity. Right? How, how do we come to see just that, how desperately poor and bankrupt, spiritually speaking, we are before God? Well, we need to see His holiness. We need to see ourselves in the light of who He is. We need to see... Romans 3, 10 to 11. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. We need to see that's me there in Romans 3. I am not righteous. I stand condemned before Him. We, we think we do many good things. I'm pretty proud of some of the stuff we did this week, perhaps. But, but what were our motives? Where was our heart? Was it always to love God with everything and to love our neighbor as ourselves? Because if it's not that 100% of the time to the fullest extent, it's just rubbish. It's trash. It's no good deed before Him. Only compounding our debt by our supposed good deeds. The most dangerous position for us to be in, loved ones, is to be in that position where we think we're all set. Where, where we're not poor in spirit. We're self-assured, self-confident. We're we think we have it together in ourselves that God has given us a place in His kingdom because of some merit in us, some worth, something good in us, how well we serve Him, how well we understand theology, how, how, how often we read His Word. That doesn't give us a place in His kingdom. It'll be poor in spirit. We're so often, as, as Thomas Watson, the Puritan, describes it, we're so often swollen with an opinion of self-excellency and self-sufficiency. So, loved ones, learn to see yourself not in your own sight and not according to the world's standards, but learn to see yourself in the light of God's holiness. Let that deflate your self-sufficiency and your self-righteousness. One commentator speaks well to this in a penetrating way. He says, The sad truth is that we know so little of the blessing of which Christ speaks and which He gives because we're all too often full of ourselves and our own means of, of, of blessing. In fact, there's no sadder commentary on our lack of this spiritual poverty than the readiness so many of us have to let others know what we think. 
But the man who is poor in spirit is the man who's been silenced by God and seeks only to speak what he's learned in humility from him. Have you been silenced by God and learned to speak only what you've learned in humility from him? Then you're poor in spirit. You're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You're living the good life, according to Jesus. Spiritually bankrupt. Hanging on to Christ. But how is this a blessing? Jesus says this is the good life. Is it a blessing only for its own sake? Is it, is it surely just to feel this you know, miserable sense of yourself? Is that the blessing? No, not at all. Jesus doesn't say we're blessed because we feel poor in spirit. We're blessed because when we're poor in spirit, we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. That's where the blessing is. And having the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is our, is our next heading here. Theirs is the kingdom. Jesus says the reason the poor in spirit are blessed is that they have the kingdom. It's theirs. The kingdom of heaven, is, of course, is that reign, uh, that rule of Jesus Christ, that he's come to save his people and judge his enemies. And to be a part of that kingdom means that you have received salvation in all that means from him. Means that you've been saved from your guilt and your sin. Means you've been saved from the powers of darkness, from Satan, from the tempter. Means you've been saved from death itself. Saved unto eternal life. You've been saved from the wrath and curse of God. You've been saved to live with Him and, and enjoy in the fullness of, of blessing in His presence forever. The kingdom of God is, is God giving to His people what, what He made them for which is to worship Him joyfully in His presence forever and ever. To have the kingdom is to have that wonderful blessing we read about in 1 Peter, of our inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. That, that, that can't rot, can't rust, can't fade. That'll last forever and ever. It's the words of Psalm 16. It's, it's a fullness of joy at God's right hand forever. Loved ones, this is what Jesus holds out to those uh, who, who, who are poor in spirit and who turn and seek His grace. It's, it's this mind-blowing reward and good inheritance. And there's nothing, there's nothing in this life, nothing on this earth, no other kingdom that competes with that. Right? There's, there's, there's no other kingdom that can offer you the good life. The only life worth living, which is a life in God's kingdom. There's, there's no, other, no other created thing that can offer you the joy that God offers you and the salvation He offers you. This is what makes being poor in spirit a mark of the good life. The truly good life. Because it means you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You're a spiritual beggar who has received a rich inheritance in Jesus Christ. That's why it's good. That's why this is a blessing. But when do we get this kingdom? Jesus says to his disciples, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who see their spiritual bankruptcy because they're blessed because they get the kingdom. But when do they get it? When do they get this wonderful salvation from God? We might have the mentality here that, that we live in this life as citizens of the kingdom, right? as those who are poor in spirit all the way through, and we're waiting for the blessing to kick in in the next life. 
Right. We're, we're waiting for, uh, uh, for, for Jesus to return and, and bring the kingdom in all its fullness, all its glory, and then that's when the blessing kicks in. Right now we're in the, the rough first half of the Beatitude, waiting for the second part, the good part. And that is, in many ways, the sense in the middle six Beatitudes. Jesus says, Blessed are the mourn, for they shall be comforted. You mourn now, comfort is coming. Blessed are those who are meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness now, because they will be satisfied. That's the sense in the middle Beatitudes. But on this first Beatitude, and if you look at the last Beatitude, in both, he lays out this point. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Now. Already. He doesn't say, theirs shall be the kingdom of heaven. He says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What's Jesus saying here? He's telling us both that it's a present kingdom as well as a future kingdom. It's already and it's not yet. And you can already come into and enjoy the blessings of the kingdom. Citizens of the kingdom of heaven, you and I living in this fallen world, we don't live within the geographical bounds of that kingdom yet. But we live under the kingship and the authority and the blessing of the king nonetheless. We're not in the new Jerusalem, in heaven, physically yet. Yet, at the same time, we already enjoy the taste of that blessed kingdom. That kingdom's already in us, you might say. A 17th century writer named Isaac Walton wrote about his Puritan contemporary Richard Sibbs, this little, uh, this little rhyme. He says, Of this blessed man, let this just praise be given. Heaven was in him before he was in heaven. And that's true of every Christian. Heaven is in him before he is in heaven. Jesus is saying, yours is the kingdom. Already you're enjoying the, 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 the taste of that kingdom. You've received the Holy Spirit, the down payment, the guarantee of that kingdom to come. Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, Paul says, you are already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Yours is the kingdom. How do we begin to enjoy the kingdom of heaven, even as we are those who are spiritually bankrupt, how do we already begin to enjoy the inheritance of the kingdom of heaven that's ours? Well, we have fellowship with God in Christ. We already taste and see the goodness of God. We, we already enjoy the, the presence of the Spirit in us. As we, as we have fellowship with Jesus Christ, as we commune with Him, we have, we have fellowship with Him and we enjoy His friendship and His blessing. That's a present reality for you and for me, loved ones. That we should be tasting His goodness day by day. The blessing of the rule of Jesus Christ over us. Jesus holds this out. He says, this is the blessing for those who are poor in spirit. The final question to ask is, how is this possible? How do the poor in spirit get the kingdom? Right, we said that the poor in spirit, what it means to be poor in spirit, spiritually bankrupt, that they're blessed because they get the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It's theirs. How can that be? Why, why is it the case that God can give those who have nothing everything that they don't deserve? 
How could God show His favor, put His blessing on sinners? We have no buying power with Him. We have no, nothing to earn that favor, to earn the kingdom. We don't merit anything from Him. How can God bless us like this? Well, the answer, of course, is with the King of Heaven. Right? As we see Jesus Christ Himself preaching this sermon, He's not preaching it as any other preacher would preach it. He's preaching it as the King Himself. And these Beatitudes, as much as they point us a portrait of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, they're painting us a portrait of the King of heaven Himself. The foremost citizen of that kingdom, Jesus Christ, who's poor in spirit. Jesus Christ. Now, not like we are, not in the same sense of being spiritually bankrupt before God, but Jesus, as He comes down to, to, to become a man, he, he lays aside His divine prerogatives. He takes on our weakness. He takes on our neediness, our, our dependence on God. He becomes totally dependent on the Spirit for everything. He becomes poor in spirit for our sakes. Listen to the way the Apostle Paul writes about the condescension of Jesus Christ in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. That's how the King of Heaven comes down. He comes down as the rich one, and He pours out His riches on the poor ones, you and me, so that we can be filled with blessing. He gives us His robes of righteousness. He takes on our rags of sin. He gives us the blessing of God. He takes on Himself the curse of God. He takes our place. He gives us His riches. He takes our poverty. And this is, this is why you and I, the poor in spirit, the morally, spiritually bankrupt ones, can enter the kingdom. Because Christ emptied Himself for us. Gave His life for us. Interestingly, the English word for blessing, blessed, is perfectly fitted to describe this idea. The English word blessing, and it's, if you go trace the etymology back, it comes from an old English word, bloodsian, if that's how you pronounce it. And it's associated with being consecrated with blood. Being, 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 being consecrated with blood is related to the idea of blessing and, and the ancient roots of the word blessed. Now, in the Greek here that this word is translating for us, there's no sense of that. Or there's, there's not a sense of that in the Greek words. So we wouldn't want to carry that over and say, well, that's what the Greek word here means. But the idea here is there. That to be blessed requires blood. Jesus' blood. As those who are under the curse, there is no blessing for us except through a blood sacrifice. And that blood sacrifice comes to us through Jesus Christ. He pours out His blood so that we might be blessed. So, loved ones, this is how sinners, you and I, can be those who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. This is how the poor in spirit can inherit the kingdom of heaven. It's through the blood of Jesus Christ. His riches for our rags. Loved ones, this is what is yours if you're poor in spirit. The King of heaven and the kingdom of heaven. 
This is for those who can say with those wonderful words that we're going to sing in a few minutes. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Loved ones, make that your prayer. Don't, don't delude yourself with a sense that you've got it. That you're self-sufficient and self-righteous. Own up to the fact that you are a spiritual beggar empty-handed, on your knees, a beggar before Christ. The Puritan Robert Hawker has a prayer that goes like this. He says, A beggar still I wish to be, and to lay at your gate, if only to glimpse your face, and to receive one token from your fair hand. Then I am most full when most empty to be filled with Jesus. You cannot be a Christian without this. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we give thanks to you. We rejoice in your goodness and your grace. We pray that you would indeed make us those who are humble and contrite in spirit and tremble at your word. Lord, help us to see the glorious riches that are ours in the kingdom of heaven and to taste and to enjoy that even as we hunger after more. We pray that you'd be a work in us by your grace. We ask all these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.